Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Los Angeles art scene as Freeze LA opens its fifth edition, Angelica Kaufman at the Royal Academy, and Matthew Wong's poignant response to Van Gogh. As Freeze Los Angeles opens its fifth iteration, the art newspaper's associate digital editor, Alexander Morrison, is in LA and talks to our correspondent there, Jory Finkel, about the changing landscape of the city's art scene. In London, the Royal Academy has finally opened an exhibition dedicated to the 18th century painter Angelica Kaufman, a show that was threatened with cancellation as Covid ravaged the plans and finances of museums in 2020. I take a tour of the exhibition with its co-curator, Annette Wickham. And this episode's work of the week is The Space Between Trees from 2019, the late Canadian-Chinese painter Matthew Wong's direct response to a lost masterpiece by Vincent van Gogh, the painter on the road to Tarascon from 1888. The connection between these two artists, divided by more than a century, is explored in a new exhibition at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam called Painting as a Last Resort. Its curator, Joost van der Herven, tells us more. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com and do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening. Please also give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the fifth Freeze Art Fair in Los Angeles opened on Thursday. Our associate digital editor, Alexander Morrison, is in LA and he spoke to Jory Finkel, the art newspaper's LA correspondent, about how the fair has affected the city's art scene, in which local and artist-run spaces have historically been significant. Well, Jory, it's five years this year since Freeze first landed in LA. I wondered if you, to start off, could tell me in your own words how you think the fair has impacted the general art scene here. Well, first of all, I should say this is the first successful art fair we've seen in LA or I've seen in LA in my 20 years here on the ground. They've done enough right. Timing has been right, apart from the major worldwide pandemic. And the location is let's say sufficient. When they started at the Paramount lot, it was much more exciting. It's a more fun location. You could go into fake New York style brownstones for a coffee or what have you when you're taking a break from the fair. There was something fun about being on the Paramount lot. They don't have that any longer at the Santa Monica airport, but it's okay. They're making it work. And this year, all the main action takes place inside their own tent, you know, the freezeway. And it's more streamlined this year, isn't it? It was previously in a hangar and a tent and it's kind of gone full freeze and it's purely in a tent this year. Is that that right? Exactly. So we won't have the long walk between the two venues. I mean, it's interesting because so much has happened in LA in recent years. So I remember listening to your chat with Ben, I think it was in 2020, and you were talking about there was a kind of nervousness about Freeze arriving and and it becoming this kind of traditional, in inverted commas, art market capital. I remember you talking about the concerns about LA becoming a kind of traditional art market capital like New York, as opposed to this kind of more free and less market orientated place that LA, I suppose, has a reputation for being. Do you think it's edging more towards market status, if you like? Oh, no, I don't think LA is in danger of becoming another New York. I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, I think there's a larger economic problem in LA, which is the cost of real estate. So that puts pressure Mm. on every person, every business in LA that begins to resemble New York. But no, I don't think LA wants to be or will be the art market capital, even with the addition of Hauser and Spruth several years ago, 
and now Marian Goodman, David Zwerner. But what impact do you think, or what has drawn those galleries here? And what do you think it does say about the fact that these international names are arriving in the city? You know, this isn't an entirely new phenomenon. We have seen galleries move to LA in waves. And I just mentioned Hauser and Worth and Spruth Magers because mm. that was maybe the first time we saw, in the case of Hauser in particular, a mega gallery come to town and use their new venue here to really consolidate market share in a certain way. You know, we saw them announce one after another worldwide global exclusive representation of an artist, an artist like Mark Bradford and then Charles Gaines. That would not have happened if they didn't have a gallery here, in part because those are L.A. artists, but in part they need the L.A. gallery or these artists have L.A. galleries and the mega galleries would have to share their artists more. So certainly having a branch in L.A. helps galleries of that stature, of that size, maintain a monopoly or near monopoly on a particular artist's inventory. But we're also seeing a lot of new galleries here who are maybe not as strategic in terms of the market. They're moving here for a variety of reasons. You know, I don't believe they're moving here just for the sunshine and the creative energy, if you will, but they're moving here to be closer to their artists. They're moving here because other people are moving here. They're moving here because there is a growing group of collectors. And the question is whether there are enough collectors to sustain all of these galleries that are here now. That's the big question. And I think we'll really see that in about five years time, which galleries have really managed to put down roots versus which galleries have set up shop temporarily, even if they don't know it now. Interesting. And do you think that Freeze itself has been a success over the last five years in terms of consolidating and building new collector groups? I mean, what is your take on the difference Freeze has made? Absolutely. I think the two have really gone hand in hand, that it makes sense to talk about the growth of the international galleries here in L.A. and the growth of Freeze. What Freeze does is it puts L.A. on the calendar for everyone. So many collectors, so many curators already come through L.A. a few times a year, wherever they live. They know they need to. They want to. They want to see the shows. They want to meet the artists and do the studio visits. But having that one week where everyone more or less has to be here, you know, Freeze used to be a two-day affair in L.A. You'd come in and out in two days and you could do everything there was to do. Now it's become the five or six days. And that's in part to Freeze's own growth, but also all the galleries surrounding it. We now have more studio visits, gallery openings, parties, dinners to attend. So as a social event, the arrival of these galleries has certainly helped cement Freeze as a destination. Yeah, got it. And how much do you think, I mean, there's been discussions behind the scenes about the role of Endeavour, obviously an entertainment and sports giant that now owns Freeze, as well as a number of talent agencies working in film and beyond. Do you think that Endeavour's links to Hollywood have allowed for Freeze to survive where other fairs obviously have tried to establish themselves in LA have failed? What's your view on that? I used to say that L.A. is where art fairs go to die, and now I have to eat my own words on that. <laughs> but I don't think it's because of Hollywood. I think it's the art world, art worlds, if you will, getting larger, or it's not Hollywood alone. We have a lot of industries here, and they may be related to entertainment, but we're talking about music industries, design, architecture, as well as film and TV, and TV is really streaming services these days. So I don't see freeze reaching deeper into those areas than everyone else is. I mean, that's already where a number of the collectors come from. But that, that's that been the case for a long, long time. I mean, think about like 
Aaron Spelling, Mm. you know, a major collector in the 80s while doing Dynasty, right? So no, I don't think Freeze has unlocked some secret door to Hollywood, if you will. Another thing that really stood out to me in terms of the coverage around Los Angeles at the moment is the amount of kind of artist-run spaces, which I know you've talked about before as being something that has a, a long legacy here. I mean, what are they bringing to the table at the moment? I mean, I was interested to see that this isn't an artist-led space, but another unusual space, a lot of home galleries, so galleries that are housed in people's homes. How unique to LA is this, and what are they bringing to the conversation? Speaking of galleries and unusual homes, Seaview Gallery is now a gallery operating out of the home in Mount Washington that Jorge Pardo designed as a museum exhibition for MoCA once upon a time. And it's open to the public and they have an amazing Jane Corrigan show that I'm very, very eager to see. So that's a gallery in an unusual home worth visiting this week. The question of artist-run spaces, I think, is really important. And it's what gives L.A. its character and spirit, is that so many of the galleries start with artists as part of the team or even artists opening their own galleries. And I can give you a couple examples. One is The Pit, which is run by a husband and wife, or as I like to say, wife and husband team, (laughs) Devin and Adam Miller. And Adam Miller is a ceramicist. They just moved to a new location downtown. They built a ceramic studio as part of the gallery for him. Something I feel in New York or in a different city, he might have to hide the fact that he was still making ceramics. And here it's front and center. So in a way, do you think that LA is allowing for a sort of an experimentation, an out-of-the-box thinking that sets itself apart from other cities then? Is, Is there that kind of looseness here? I think so. And I think it has to do with not being the market center for such a long time, that the financial stakes were lower. And the distinction between studio and gallery was blurred in interesting and productive ways. And how are the kind of major institutions playing into that? Are they a supportive entity within the artist community or do they feel very distinct from the gallery scene and the artist scene? How connected are the two? There are some museums that feel quite distinct. The Broad is doing its own thing. It doesn't feel very close to artists making art right now. The Getty Mm. at the top of the hill, you know, the Getty by its very mission, does not collect contemporary art, does not collect art made after 1900, except in the case of photography. So their connections to the contemporary art scene are pretty tangential, you know, an occasional commission of one kind or another. Then again, the Getty is funding Pacific Standard Time, which helps fund 50 or 60 museum shows and involves so many artists. So indirectly, the Getty is floating everyone's boats. But there are museums, like MoCA is still very much connected to artists and giving them sometimes their first project show. And the Hammer has been most connected of all, I think, with Made in LA, the biennial that they do. Every two years, they feature artists working in and around LA. And the first edition, which was 12 years ago, I believe, The big question was, could they do this? Could they find enough great artists? It's like the Whitney Biennial, but very specific regional focus, right? Could they find enough great artists to keep on doing a biennial every two years just in and of LA? And this past year, the biennial that just closed was phenomenal. It was their best yet. So they have proven that there is a talent pool in LA that is extraordinary, diverse, surprising, startling in its scope. And it feels like a city that's changing, you know, quite 
physically and, and geographically as well. I mean, driving around LA is quite overwhelming and everything can feel quite far apart from one another, but there are new kind of hubs and art districts that seem to be opening. I'm thinking of Melrose Hill and Atwater Village that seem to be these kind of new locuses for galleries. How much have you seen the gallery landscape change in the city? And, and is there anything that particularly... Oh, no. I mean, every couple of years. <laughs> Just when you think there's an epicenter, when you think, oh, Chinatown is it, then Culver City sprouts up. And Culver City is it. And then you're dealing with Highland Avenue and all the galleries in Hollywood. Hollywood's it. And you have Melrose Hill. So it's a whack-a-mole game for sure. What it does right now, because these gallery districts don't close up entirely. You know, Culver City, Blum and Poe is still there. Honor Fraser is still there. There's still galleries worth going to. It makes LA even more challenging when you're mapping out your galleries for the day. So I'm actually of the opinion that if I had one wish and I could change one thing about the gallery scene right now in LA, I would make them all have shows that last 10 weeks instead of six, 12 weeks to be generous. It takes that long to get around town and see all the shows you want to see. In terms of the fair this year in Freeze LA, is there anything that you're particularly looking out for, excited about? Yeah, there are quite a few things I'm looking forward to seeing at the fair. One is the booth that Jeffrey Deitch is doing. Isabel Albuquerque, a sculptor who just blows me away with the power of her work, is being paired with Celeste Dupuis Spencer. And there's another pairing, Suzanne Vilmitter's booth, Whitney Bedford and Andrea Bowers, really powerful artists as well. I definitely favor the solo booth presentations where you get to know an artist's work in depth over the group surveys myself. I'm also looking forward to the focus section of the fair. In the past few years, Amanda Hunt curated it. And so now they have a new curator, Essence Harden, who comes from the California African-American Museum. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does. I think the theme is ecologies of some kind, which I imagine being LA feels a very fitting term right now when so many new ecologies are emerging across the city. And I'm sure it will touch on the environment and everything else. So lots to be excited about. You're going to Felix as well. Is that right? You're heading there today. That's a kind of affair that emerged in a hotel. Can you tell me a bit about that and what you're expecting there? Yeah, Felix has been a really important part of this week as well. I mean, it is fun more than anything else. There's always the question, is a hotel room ideal viewing situation for artwork? Not ideal, but is it fun? Is it a great place to hang out with friends while you look at new sculpture or painting or what have you? And last year, sales were really strong anecdotally. So I see that they have a lot of returning galleries, which is a good sign. And then you get to hang out at the pool and have a drink with a curator you haven't seen in a year or two. That sounds lovely. And I mean, you touched on you know sales and ultimately that is what Freeze will be judged on to a large extent. We're talking at a time when there are great economic challenges and a general election coming up and an atmosphere of, you know, in some ways tension when you're thinking about the broader picture. I mean, how much has the bigger conversation affected Freeze and and LA and how do you think it has reacted and I suppose as a a follow-up question where do you see this all going in the next five years are you positive about the future of the Los Angeles art scene I mean galleries are nervous if they're reading the news if they're looking at the markets galleries are nervous and I think they have reason to be nervous but I can't predict you know the extent to which LA can weather 
the international turbulence ahead of us. And politically, I can't predict anything. So, <laughs> so no predictions from me, except that I do think five years is the right time. Have me back on the podcast in five years, and we can go over the list of galleries that have decided to stay in LA that have really made a go of it. One of the things I did for the art newspapers, Daily Editions this year, is I reported out a story on how all the new galleries, the influx of galleries in town, has created unprecedented job opportunity for people working in galleries. It's a pretty obvious point, but there's never been a better time to be a gallery director in LA. There's more job movement than ever before. You know, imagine if you were a gallery director before at Regan or Blum and Poe, I'm trying to train myself to say Blum now. <laughs> if you were a gallery director at that level, you had very, very few options. Now there are all these new galleries in town and they know that they need local expertise to make it work. So they're busy building local teams and competing for some of the same talent, which has been interesting to see. I actually also got a, a tip from one of my sources on that story that the hottest job of all in Los Angeles art world, maybe in Los Angeles, Mark it all together is senior registrar. All of these galleries need their registrars and there aren't enough to go around and there isn't enough experience to go around. So if that happens to be your job and you happen to be in another city, now is the time to come to LA. So going back to your question, give me five years and I think we could do a really smart analysis of which gallery succeeded and why. And I would like to think at that point that some of this local expertise really does make a difference. That the galleries that go really deep into the history of LA and draw on experience here will have a better chance of surviving. Well, thanks so much, Dory. We'll speak again in five years. Perfect, Alex. Thank you for having me. Freeze Los Angeles continues until Sunday the 3rd of March at Santa Monica Airport. Coming up, Angelica Kaufman in London and Matthew Wong and Vincent van Gogh in Amsterdam. That's after this week's news bulletin. Italy's culture minister Gennaro San Giuliano says that Israel will be represented at this year's Venice Biennale after thousands of artists and cultural workers signed an open letter calling for the country's exclusion from the world's most prestigious art event. The letter, issued earlier this week by a group known as the Art Not Genocide Alliance or ANGA, had been signed by more than 19,000 people by Thursday, including the artist Nan Goldin, Michael Rakowitz and last year's Turner Prize winner Jesse Darling. In a statement issued on the 27th of February, San Giuliano called the letter shameful, expressed solidarity with the State of Israel and argued that the Biennale was a space of freedom, meeting and dialogue and not censorship and intolerance. Culture, he said, is a bridge between people and nations, not a dividing wall. In response, the ANGA stated that, quote, culture is not a bridge between people and nations when one nation is involved in the elimination of another. The artist Ruth Patir will represent Israel in the Biennale, which opens in April. The organisation that runs the Biennale stated that all countries recognised by the Italian Republic may autonomously request to be an official part of the Biennale and so it cannot consider a petition to exclude Israel's participation. 
An Ethiopian shield looted at the Battle of Magdala in 1868 was withdrawn from an auction due to take place in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK on Thursday. The government of Ethiopia had formally asked for the sale to be cancelled and for the battle trophy to be restituted from the UK. The Ethiopian Heritage Authority said that it welcomed the decision. It also plans to start a dialogue aimed to return the object to what it called its legitimate owners, the people and government of Ethiopia. The shield had been included in a sale by Anderson and Garland auctioneers. The estimate for the object had been 800 to 1200 pounds, a relatively modest sum, perhaps in part reflecting its contested status as colonial loot. The Great Mosque of Algiers has opened in the Algerian capital after seven years of construction, with space for 35,000 worshippers in its large prayer hall and 120,000 visitors in total. It will now be the largest mosque in Africa, a title once held by the Hassan II Mosque in Morocco and the third largest mosque in the world after those in Medina and Mecca. The building was designed by the German architects KSP Engel and constructed by the state-owned Chinese firm China State Construction Engineering. It's said to have cost 890 million dollars. To read these stories and much more, visit the website or the app. Now, in 2020, as the pandemic caused museums across the world to close, the Royal Academy of Arts in London announced that it was cancelling a long-planned survey of one of its founding members, Angelica Kaufman, to widespread dismay. Thankfully, it was restored to the Academy's programme and finally opens this week. I went to the RA to see the long-awaited show and take a tour with its co-curator, Annette Wickham. Annette, we're standing among a series of self-portraits by Angelica Kaufman. I think it would be nice to get a sense of her biography before we start looking at the paintings, because she's a really international figure, isn't she? Tell us more. Yes, well, that's one of the reasons we've started with this group of self-portraits. It's partly to introduce her biography, uh, because we feel that people might be less familiar with it here than in other countries. She was born in 1741 in Kur in Switzerland. Her mother was Swiss, but her father was Austrian, and... He was a court painter, so they spent her childhood travelling around various different locations in that area, but covering Germany, Austria, Switzerland and northern Italy. She was talented both in singing and in art as a child. She was an only child, and her mother was a singer and her father was an artist. So uh, <laughs> There's a, a tussle between them to, <laughs> to win out. Been. And there was a cousin who might have been a half-brother hanging around, but um, essentially she got all of the attention right. and was recognised as a prodigy very early on. Right. But sadly, her mother died when she was quite young, when they were living in Milan, and it was after that that she chose to definitely focus on painting as her career. Was she apprenticed to her father? Was she, yes. Was she, right, okay. yes. So as a woman, she obviously couldn't officially enroll at any art academy of the time. Um, she was given permission in Florence, I think, to go and study at the academia, but she had to sit separately from the, the men. Uh, so it was really, yes, with her father that she followed a, a sort of academic training, but of their own making. So she studied classical sculpture and she made copies after the old masters and she met important artists of the time but she couldn't study life drawing in the way that a, a male student would have been able to because she was excluded from that uh, of on uh, grounds yeah, yeah. of her And where did she begin her professional career if you like? Really in Italy so she and her father in the early 1760s were travelling around all the sort of main artistic centres in Italy but particularly Florence and Rome and in Rome she met uh, many other neoclassical 
classical artists with the shared interests and also people like Johann Winkelmann, uh, the neoclassical scholar. So she was meeting all of the right people and uh, started to, to paint some of them. So we have the lovely portrait of Winkelmann here, which uh, mm. really gives this idea of informality between the two of them and a sense of ease. And, uh, and her as an equal to him. Yes, which is interesting because he was already well established as a, as a scholar uh, and was quite a lot older than her. But uh, she seems to have managed to pull off really quite remarkably this style of quite sort of intimate portrait painting with her early sitters who were mostly men, which is quite remarkable, I think, for a young woman of her time. Absolutely. She seems mm. remarkably confident and, and mm. that does come through in yes. the self-portraits that we're surrounded by, mm. doesn't it? Because mm. is it self-promotion or is it just important for artists to have a kind of self-image at that time? Mm. Because they're, of course, having to get work. They, yeah. they need work. That's a good question. And I think it was both. And I think she didn't see business as a dirty word, I don't think. I right. mean, she knew that she had to promote herself. She didn't come from a wealthy background. You know, her father had work, but he had to travel to whichever court he was uh, requested by. And I think she very much had in mind from an early age that she had to promote herself, especially as a woman, and to to show that she was a professional. So self-portraits, you know, serve several purposes for her, I think. It's uh, certainly a way of showing what she can do, of getting her image known. But also, especially as she gets older with works like this Uffizi portrait, Mm. they're also a public statement and a way of controlling and shaping her own image for posterity. And she was very, very keen that this work should enter the the Hall of Fame at the Uffizi and offered to paint it. They already had a picture of her, but it was of her as a young girl and she didn't think that was how she wanted to be represented. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because she has Mm. a sense of herself within Mm. the wider culture of artists. So she has that Mm. ambition to be Mm. represented as she herself sees herself, which is is a pretty strong statement to make, isn't Mm. it? I think so. And that comes out in the self-portraits. I mean, this one, but also the self-portrait between the arts of music and painting, where she's casting herself in the role of Hercules choosing between virtue and vice, so a male heroic role, and, you know, painting herself on the same sort of scale as a a grand history painting of a subject from literature or the Bible. So uh, That's great. We're we're going to return to that painting (laughs) a bit later, but can we go and look at some of the portraits? Because, as you say, there's this wonderful intimacy about Mm. them, and there's this extraordinary portrait, I think, of Garrick, the actor, David Garrick, Mm. a very famous actor, probably among the most famous people mm. in Britain at that time. Yes, and she that... paints him in Italy, doesn't she? Yes. Is, this, is this significant in terms of her then coming to London after that? Yes, that's right. I think it is. I mean, she was generally in demand from grand tourists and particularly popular with British tourists and expats in Italy. And so she, I think, probably had the idea already that she might try to come to England. Uh, but she meets Garrick while he's travelling in Italy and paints this, again, lovely self-portrait where you have the idea that he's sort of turning around in his chair to, to chat to the artist and he's not in any theatrical guise it's, it's uh, you know, Garrick the man instead of Garrick the actor and, and that's very important because we are used to seeing portraits yes. of Garrick in his role exactly so in costume yeah. often yeah, um, yeah. so this is quite different uh, and she again being quite astute in her dealings she decided to test the waters in London by sending this ahead of her to be exhibited at the Society of Artists so because he was so famous of course it increased her fame as well and made her a recognisable name in, in London before she got here. That's interesting. But portraits weren't important to her 
in terms of her own estimation of her work, right? She was much more intent on being a history painter. Yes, that right? that's right. I mean, she says that she was less keen on portraits, but I think, you know, looking at them, she puts a lot into them and they're really very subtle and cleverly painted and uh, sort of psychologically astute as well, I think. So, you know, I don't think it was just, you know, her bread and butter, but certainly she wanted to be known as a history painter because I think that was seen as the, you know, sort of height of artistic achievement at the time. It was what the, the Royal Academy was set up to promote. Right. And it was also, I think, for Kaufman, a way of proving that she was a professional because there were plenty of other women artists at the time, but a lot of them were not necessarily considered professionals or they were portrait painters or flower painters which were seen as more acceptable genres for women and she clearly wanted to break out of that and show what she could do as a, as a history painter. And you've got this wonderful wall of history paintings mm. here that we're looking at now. Why was it that there was a sort of dearth of history painting in Britain at that time that she came to kind of reinvigorate? Yes, yes. well there were others who did as well but there was a dearth really because of the, the lack of commissions for history painting ah. sadly. <laughs> right. English were famous famous for paying and for... And money talks. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> they wanted portraits and landscapes and not so much history painting. But Kaufman was very fashionable at the time and also chose these sorts of subjects that were very appealing and the way that she portrayed them. And she did actually manage to find patrons for her history painting. So, And I think it's fair to say they're perhaps slightly less stodgy than some of the productions of the time. Yeah, and, and there's a really interesting <laughs> point that's made in the catalogue, which mm. is that she brings together not just the neoclassicism for mm. which she is well mm. known mm. but a baroque sense of color and is that which sort of sets them apart in a way Yes, I think so. I mean, that, that's certainly one thing. They are more, I think, visually appealing than some of the large history paintings that were being produced at the time. But also, I think she had a, a knack for interesting protagonists and often found interesting stories from the literature. I mean, she was very well-read and erudite mm. as well, so mm. she had a lot of sources to choose from. But she found particularly interesting female characters. And when she chose uh, well-known characters, she often showed them in a slightly different light. So Cleopatra, for for instance, at that time was often shown killing herself with the asp, but yes, uh, instead of getting into her dramatic history of her own life, actually Kaufman shows her clad in white as a sort of grieving widow at the tomb of Mark Antony, so she becomes more of a sort of relatable every woman. I was going to say, so is this therefore something clever as well as mm. compositionally clever, if you like, clever in terms of how she's marketing it, in the mm. sense that there are going to be widows that will see this, wealthy widows who will see this painting and will identify with it. Yeah, I think, I think possibly that's true and it's also part of, I suppose, the whole kind of cult of sensibility and the idea of mm. people wanting these paintings that evoke emotion and, and thought in that sense. So yes, it probably worked in several levels. She's a brilliant garland painter, I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> she paints flowers very well, but particularly the, you know, we have two right next to each other, not yes. just the Cleopatra painting, mm. but another next to it, which feature garlands. Yes, and she's, she's, right. They bring these bursts of colour and texture into the work, don't they? They do. It's kind of, she's very good at scarves as well. Right. <laughs> just yeah. With a slight sort of embroidered edge, yes. Yeah. yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, as, you know she could have obviously uh, followed the path of flower painting, but instead incorporates it into the, the history. Indeed. And just lightens it a little with uh, touches like that. I think, yeah. yeah, and then also you said she's very well read. There's this really beautiful painting. She worked on copper some of the time. Yes, actually, I yeah. loved these paintings. Mm. They're very on a very intimate scale. But yeah. there's a, a picture of Paul Maria, which is Lawrence Stern character. So she was really, mm. as well as history paintings, it was bringing literature, which of course was in, in its own way a kind of genre within history painting. If yes, you like. and often she's looking at several sources at once. 
so I mean this one is is definitely from Stern but uh, this painting here Eleanor sucking the venom out of the wound of her husband Edward the first refers to a history of England that had been written in the mid 18th century but also a play which had been based on that and so there's often sort of various cultural references like that but yes poor Maria was you know particularly popular and it's funny to see that, that this is such a tiny image mm. but when you look closely it's really finely painted and this just caught the public imagination and was reproduced all over the place both in print and also in sort of decorative schemes so yes again it's this idea of an emotive figure which you know evokes feeling in the, in the viewer and sort of sentimentality which now of course sometimes people don't uh, react to in the same way but you know that was really seen as a, a, the forefront of fashionable neoclassicism at the time right now you mentioned the royal academy earlier mm. on. you have a whole room dedicated to her relationship with the royal academy she was a founding member there's that marvellous Zoffany group painting mm. of, of the Royal Academicians, the founding Royal Academicians. Mm. And, of course, they're in a life class and she can't be pictured with them. Um, tell us more about this extraordinary painting. It is extraordinary. But what's interesting about it is that he didn't leave them out. So I think there's some sense that he shouldn't have just excluded them altogether. He could have done. There are several other people who aren't in the painting. But, yes, this situation where Mary Moser and Angelica Kaufman are shown as these not terribly distinct portraits on the side of the wall does make them into peripheral characters and literally objectifies them so this has mm. obviously been written about a lot in those terms by you know, gender historians of course. but it does I think point out they had a, a real duality to their status as academicians so in terms of the public face of the RA both Moser and Kaufman were celebrated and they're often talked about in the press and associated associated with the Academy and show their works every year, especially Kaufman, often an impressive range of her history paintings and portraits. But that didn't carry over into the inner life of the institution. So whereas all of these men that you can see here gathering for the, the life drawing class would have been expected to fulfil various roles at the Academy, such as teaching, lecturing, just running the institution via the, the council and also hanging the exhibition every year, the women were excluded entirely from that. Their only involvement was that they were allowed to vote on new members, but not in person, by right. post. Right. <laughs> so. But it really does stress how important and remarkable mm. her level of fame was, given the adversity within which she was working. Indeed, and really remarkable, I think, that she arrived in London only in the middle of 1866, but by the end of 1868, she was here amongst this group of, you know, the top artists in the country, petitioning George III to start the first official academy in England. Amazing. In that painting, there is a rather marvellous little portrait of Joshua Reynolds with his ear trumpet, because yes. he, was, he was hard of hearing. There is a really wonderful full portrait of Reynolds by Kaufman nearby mm. and it's so striking because I know very well that Reynolds self-portrait mm. yes. with the bust of Michelangelo yes. but it was her idea yes that's right <laughs> <laughs> so um, she met Reynolds as soon as she got to London you know got to know the right people and they got on so well that they decided to paint each other's portraits which was quite a coup for Kaufman because he was certainly the senior artist she calls him the, the first painter in England and some years older than her and very much more established so it's quite 
interesting that he paid Kaufman so much attention and was so interested in helping her. And she paints this portrait, which again has this air of informality. We're actually in the studio with Reynolds, but she depicts him as I'm sure he was happy to be shown as a very intellectual artist. He's mm, got piles his... of books. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and some of them are publications that he even contributed to, and others are by his friends, like Oliver Goldsmith and Dr. Johnson. So he's definitely, she's setting him within that context. And yes, he's leaning over and listening to Radio Michelangelo there as uh, Michael, <laughs> the bust of Michelangelo whispers in, in his ear. But you can easily miss it. But on the other side, there's a, a blank canvas. And yeah. so it's sort of the creative process. And uh, Reynolds is there thinking about what's going to go on to it. And she also signed the canvas. You can hardly see it. But on the lower right oh, there, yeah, so she, she yeah, actually, right. okay. <laughs> as so, I'm as sure, well a as sort of more official them. kind of yes. almost branding in the top right uh, yeah. in terms of a signature there's a signature on the canvas yes I think that might have been added later but she she wrote uh, her own signature on his canvas so a little bit cheeky (laughs) so I'm sure he appreciated the joke um, (laughs) let's go into the Mm. next room because among other things Mm. what that painting of Reynolds shows is her extraordinary flair in terms of Mm. the techniques and her adaptability if you like of styles it seems Mm. to me that she's painting with his own style in mind in that painting and here Mm. we have this wonderful pair of portraits Mm. in which she depicts Charles who's the first Marcus of Aylesbury and if I had not seen that it was in this exhibition, I would assume it was by Van Dyck. Oh, it wow. Is so, <laughs> it's <laughs> so yeah. accomplished in, yes, in terms of, oh, it's not mm. mimicry, but it's definitely an homage of sorts mm, to Van mm, Dyck, right? Mm. Yes, and I mean, the, these Van Dyck costumes were quite popular with uh, various artists in the late 18th century. And mm. I think for Kaufman, it's a way of painting still quite an immediate and direct portrait but making it a little more aristocratic for her grand tourist uh, <laughs> patrons but keeping a sort of air of levity about it with the this sort of fancy dress but also references as you say to Van Dyck and sort of a previous art in that sense. And it's a pair with a painting that was actually made earlier of his future wife, Henrietta. So it's a kind of, are they marriage portraits? Uh, Yes, it essentially is a marriage portrait, but she was having her portrait painted by Kaufman anyway. Right, yeah. (laughs) And they got engaged while it was being painted, I think, and he ends up uh, paying for it instead of her mother who'd commissioned it, and then he commissions his own portrait to go with it. So it's a a pair and a marriage portrait. But there's a nice story about the two of these people meeting. They were both on their grand tour, but she was out on an excursion from Naples on horseback and fell off and he's supposed to have actually caught her as she did and oh. uh, that's how it all started. Oh, gallantry. <laughs> yeah. How wonderful. These paintings that we just talked about were painted from Rome. She was, she was yes, then in based Rome, in Rome. Yes, so she was in London for 15 years. Yes, um, that's right. Yeah. And then went back to Rome and spent most of her life indeed in Rome, right? Yes, if you add it up probably. I mean she was sort of travelling around Italy a little early on but yes, certainly in Rome from 1782 onwards. And from mm. there she painted one of the Great beauties of the age, Emma Hart, uh, Lady Hamilton, who's almost more infamous than famous. But I love the fact that she here is given agency and and power and is a remarkable figure. Mm. Um, Tell us more about this. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, so in 1791, Lady Hamilton, who'd just become Lady Hamilton, uh, was probably at the height of her respectability, really, because she'd just (laughs) married William Hamilton, the ambassador to Naples. And she actually, I think, had this painted on her way back from getting married in London and stops in Rome. She'd already asked to be painted by Kaufman some years before, but had to wait. And yes, I think the result is really powerful because she 
gives Hamilton this sort of sense of presence and performance because at this time she was particularly known for her attitude. So right. uh, this sort of performance art that she developed whereby just wearing a, a kind of shift and shawl a little bit like as she's shown here she emulated all of these different poses from classical sculpture and from works of the old masters and so she was she was really famous at the time for this and it's before the affair with Lord Nelson so um, it's a really interesting moment and I think yes Kaufman gives her the guise of the muse but as with some of the other portraits she's muse and creator combined so it does have a sort of extra power to it I think that doesn't come across in some depictions absolutely of, of and it's that thing about also about meeting our gaze you know yes. she's absolutely meeting us head on and it seems yeah. to me you know that's Angelica Kaufman saying I'm looking at you and wanting her to look back at her and that's, there's that's a sort right. of power in that there is and I think quite a lot of individuality to the face as well again mm. more so than mm-hmm. perhaps you get in some other uh, depictions of Emma Hamilton right and you mentioned earlier on ah, yes, the sorry, grand <laughs> portrait of Kaufman herself mm. between the arts and music and painting. Mm. It really is a remarkable work on so many levels, not just on a technical level, but also there's so much in it that makes you ponder again about her self-image. Mm. Mm. What do you think she's trying to do in this painting? I suppose she's putting her stamp on posterity here as a woman artist and as an individual. But just, yeah, really strident painting, I think, to paint herself on this scale and in this manner. It's a monumental painting. Absolutely monumental, yes, exactly. She's between music and painting. Yes. What's lovely is that she's almost lamentingly turning away from music. Yes. Holding the hand of music as if to say, I'm sorry, but painting wins. Exactly. I I would read it that way as well. There's been a lot written about this painting, but uh, I think that that's the right interpretation. She's making her apologies to music as she takes the road of virtue, as it were. She's presented herself in the the manner of Hercules at the crossroads between uh, vice and virtue. That's not to say that music is vice, but I suppose it would be seen as the easier choice for Kaufman and she goes instead for the virtuous difficult route of painting who shows her the mountain she has to climb to get to the Temple of Fame. Yeah, but it's also a sort of golden light, isn't yes. it, at the top? So it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a classical it temple. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she, yeah, exactly. So it's this golden light. She's, she's, there's a temple at the top of the mountain. She's, that's what she's aiming for. But yes. it's also... I wondered if it's about somehow representing her again within that canon of, of great painters. It's almost like the temple is achieving yes. greatness. Yes. And, and that's her aspiration, but it's also, you know, saying, I've achieved this. I think that's right. I think at the point she painted this, I think she did feel she'd achieved it and, and was right and uh, was painting this to visualise that in a sense. Yes, it's a sort of image of her achievement in painting, I think. And lastly, the fact that that is a classical temple at the top of that mm-hmm. hill allied to the composition you realize the extent of the influence of classicism really strongly in this not just three graces of sorts you know profiles and so on it seems to me that she's utterly obsessed with the classical world to a certain yes i think so yes although i think you do also and particularly in this one see traces of her study of the old masters as well so the classics filtered through the renaissance as well as studied on their own and she combines all of that i think i mean this figure on the right is very sort of raphaelesque you know if you compare it to the figure in the Transfiguration and paintings like that. I think right. there's, there's a lot of different references going on there. But yes, I mean, I think she would have described herself as a neoclassist and the classics were her inspiration. 
And Raphael was her kind of greatest master, if you like. He was the person that she turned to the most of the of the masters. Perhaps, yes. I think you definitely see traces of Raphael through her paintings throughout, really, from the sort of early works onwards, but especially in some of these later Roman works, I think, a bit like the Christ and the Samaritan Woman as well. I think traces of, of that too. Well, Annette, thank you so much for joining oh, us. You're very welcome. <laughs> Angelica Kaufman is at the Royal Academy of Arts in London from the 1st of March until the 30th of June. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam this week opens the exhibition Matthew Wong, Vincent van Gogh, Painting as a Last Resort. It focuses on two artists from entirely different places and periods, but with a shared sensibility and commitment to the art of painting. Both men died by suicide in their 30s, van Gogh in 1890 and Wong in 2019. Wong responded directly to some of his Dutch forebears' pictures. The Space Between Trees, made in 2019, directly quotes van Goff's painter on the road to Tarascon, painted in 1888 and now only known in the form of a colour reproduction because the original was lost in the Second World War. I spoke to the curator of the exhibition, Joost van der Hoven, about Wong's painting. Joost, I just wanted to begin by getting a bit of biography on Matthew Wong. People know a lot about Vincent van Gogh, but they may not know Matthew. Tell us more about him. So Matthew Wong was a Canadian-Chinese painter draftsman. He was self-taught and he didn't start painting and drawing before he was 27. Um, He started out in Hong Kong and then later during his career he moved to Edmonton. He was born in Toronto. He went back and forth between Canada and Hong Kong all the time. So he was really at home in both uh, places. His work you can describe by very personal, original, expressive, colorful, uh, melancholic, imaginative. And he developed in a very quick pace. Within eight years, he created a body of work that counts over 1,300 works. Extraordinary. He suffered from chronic depression, Tourette's syndrome, among other things, and unfortunately ended his life at 35. You say he took up painting quite late. He was a photographer before that. Do you see his photography as having any influence over his later work? Or do you treat them as completely separate things? No, they're definitely not separate. I think, first of all, photography was a segue into the work of art. And the master's program that he did also led him to do an internship at the Venice Biennale in 2011. And it was actually Mm. there that he encountered the work of Julian Schnabel and Christopher Wool. And that basically propelled him into painting because he didn't realize that oil on canvas could have such a profound impact on somebody. And he literally thought that if Julian Schnabel can make those kinds of expressive and abstract canvases, I can do it too. Right. And it's extraordinary. He he goes on a kind of journey through painting, right? So then he's he's on this kind of mission to make paintings. Mm-hmm. He treats he calls it a last resort, which is the title of your show. Exactly. But his thirst for information and knowledge of painting seems extraordinary at that point. It is exceptional. I mean, he had something that borders on a photographic memory. He was like a sponge. He soaked up everything that he learned, and within no time he was able to bring it into his painting. But maybe it's interesting to get back to the title of the show, Hmm. because I call it painting as a last resort, because these were actually Matthew's own words. 
And he called it his last resort because he had been trying all these different things in life. You know, he had a bachelor's degree in cultural anthropology. He had a master's in photography. He did all kinds of internships, jobs, and nothing seemed to work because his mental health was always in his way. So he basically leached on to painting as his last resort in life. And he was very determined of making this a success. And he actually succeeded. And that's one of the most extraordinary things, I think, that can happen. It's so unlikely. And within a relatively short time of picking up the brush in the first case. Five years. Yeah. There was five years between him making his first drawing and the Dallas Art Fair where he sold his work to the Dallas Museum of Art. It's incredible. Now, we're going to talk about Van Gogh. And there's this wonderful quote from him that I found so moving when I first read it. I choked up. Right. Please tell us that quote. What did Matthew Wong say about Van Gogh? Uh, yes, he said, I see myself in him, the impossibility of belonging in this world. Right. So he was conscious that Van Gogh himself had died by suicide. Yes. And he was suffering from depression mm-hmm. and, and saw a kindred spirit. Yes. Despite that massive distance of time. So what I write in my catalogue essay, I mean, I don't have as much room for it to totally go into it in the exhibition. But the point that I want to make is that when he first got the hint of success and was able to acknowledge that he was becoming successful as an artist. He was happy for a brief period, but he hoped that the success would be like a lasting remedy for his chronic depressive state. Mm. But after a couple of months, he realized that it wasn't. His dark feelings returned, and it was at this moment that he felt misunderstood within the art world. He felt like an outsider not being able to connect with people. And it was at that very moment, I think, that he felt this sort of connection with Van Gogh. And he also found comfort in Van Gogh's life story. And of course, they were both very literary figures as well, in the sense that, you know, they took a lot of inspiration from literature. Mm -hmm. And Matthew was a writer as well. Is that right? He was a writer. He was doing poetry, actually, since 2008. And he was also performing at open mic nights in Hong Kong. And there's also quite a couple of people that he met through there who were artists, poets, and he was corresponding with those people a lot. So he was pretty active as a poet, actually. Now, the painting that we're going to talk about is actually one of three he made in very direct correspondence with paintings by Vincent van Gogh. Exactly. Tell us about it. So this painting is called The Space Between Trees, and it's actually pretty direct homage to van Gogh's painter on the way to Tarascon. And this is one of three paintings, I think, or maybe more um, works that were lost in World War II. I think it's already telling that Matthew chose that one. But it's the work where you see Van Gogh basically walking along a path, going to his motif with all his painter's gear, going afield, trying to look for something in nature to paint. And he makes a copy after the entire composition, but he takes Van Gogh out and he replaces him by this bench. And this bench is actually sort of a symbolic self-portrait for Matthew Wong, not unlike Van Gogh's chair. And it refers to this park bench in Edmonton where he spent a lot of time, actually. It was close to his home. He spent a lot of time contemplating his life. And little by little, it sort of came into his art. And he painted this bench a couple of times. And so it became a symbol for him personally, his life as a thinker, maybe even. And then he inserted that into Van Gogh's work. So basically personifying himself with Van Gogh in his work. So that goes to show what a beautiful homage it is. And I can also tell you about the title that refers to a fiction piece by a Canadian writer and poet, which was called The Space Between Trees. And it's about this woman who works among a group of tree planters somewhere in Canada, and she just doesn't belong 
she has no connection with these people. So the feeling of being an outcast is felt throughout that story. And it, it's really telling that Matthew chose that title for this painting of him and Van Gogh. It's a remarkable work in the way that it relates to the Van Gogh, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got many of the similar colours, mm-hmm. but also there are subtle variations on Van Gogh's composition, not just the removal of the figure, mm-hmm. of the painter figure, but also in the way that, for instance, he treats the sky, and then also, wonderfully, I think, the way he treats shadows in the right. work. Right, yes. Tell us more about that. I think if you compare these two works, you see how stylized actually his style is. And I think you can see that also the inspiration that he got from a Chinese literati drawing and pink painting. Mm. It's interesting that you bring this up because Van Gogh does become quite traditional if you show him next to Matthew Wong's work. Mm. But, and this is what everybody gets when they come into the show because they think, okay, his paintings are very measured and everything is very neat. But if you see the work in person, you see how expressive with how much bravura and how much dynamism it was painted. And the paint is laid on so thick Mm. and there's so much texture that it has that same sort of tactile quality as Van Gogh's work. Absolutely. This gorgeous yellow, the golden colours that Van Gogh made his trademark in so many paintings. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. but Matthew's command of it is, as you say, bravura as well. There's an incredible commitment to this golden light through the painting. I think he was the most talented colorist we have in this day and age. I mean, he had such a natural feeling for how color works. You know, if you go into the show and you can see the broad spectrum of all his colors that he Mm. used. And of course, there's been shows in the past about his blue works. Like in the last year of his life, he painted an entire series of blue paintings, of course, Mm -hmm. referring to Picasso, among others. But we have the entire width of his work and yellow work fits in there perfectly. In the catalogue, you write about this bench, and it's really interesting in connection to his studio life, because you say it's towards the end of his life, he's going into the studio Mm -hmm. for three days a week or so, and the rest of the time he will go and sit on this bench as a kind of alternative process. But as you say, it's like the two aspects of art making in a way. It's the practical and the thinking, right? It's the practical and the thinking. And the practical was overbearing in the first years of his, his career, like he painted more than five works a day, and he posted everything he made on Facebook, and Mm. it was really about keeping his hand moving. But at a certain time, when he came of age as an artist, he's got this wonderful landscape that he calls coming-of-age landscape, and there's some tranquility and some rest in the work, and he finds this rest within himself, and his senses become more open, I think, to everything around him, and he tries to include his experiences of daily life into his work. Whereas first he was sort of reaching out all across art history to try to come up with this personal style. And he came into his own more, I think, during the last years and instilling more rest in his daily routine. And it's unfortunate that he was not able to continue that longer. And of course, he can't help but look at this painting as representing the absence of the painter. And, and you yes. refer to that in the catalogue, don't you? Because, of course, uh-huh. because he was experiencing such terrible depression, he would have contemplated his life sitting on that very bench. So that, that makes this work all the more poignant to a certain degree. It does. It does. I have not found an actual evidence that the empty bench is a sort of a foretelling of his imminent departure. But you can read it like that, I think, yes. But then again, it's definitely not one of his last works. It was made months and months before he decided to end his life. But I think the ideas were in his head. Yes, of course. 
The Van Gogh painting, of course, inspired a whole series of paintings by Francis Bacon. And, and right. you allude tantalisingly to that in the catalogue because you think that Matthew Wong probably was aware of the fact that Bacon had made these riffs on Van Gogh. Definitely, definitely. And he was very interested in Bacon's life, having also been this self-taught painter. Yeah, I think he was very interested in the persona of a self-taught painter sort of on the outside of the art world. And the fact that he was self-taught, he thought about that a lot. I think he saw it as a sort of a perk for himself that he wasn't over-educated and that he was able to access his inner world directly. It's a bit of a cliched way of thinking about this, and it, it recalls primitivism and all the thought around that, but he did think like that, and he was happy, actually, that he was not educated as a painter because he knew he was good. He didn't need the actual academic training, and, yeah, this directness of tapping into yourself, I think, was unfiltered for him, and he uh, really profited off of that. And also, in, in a way, if you go through an art education, you might resist making this director homage to a Van Gogh painting. That sort of coaxing out of ideas that happens through an educative process might actually restrict how much you can directly engage with the past to a certain degree. You will probably learn that it's totally not done to make a reference to Vincent van Gogh, <laughs> let alone because there's also a reference to Starry Night in the show. Mm. I do stress that Matthew knew that this was the most cliched image in art history, but he didn't care. Right. Like this was at a point in his career when he had that realization that the success wasn't going to do anything for his depressive state. So he thought, you know, I'm not going to worry about my image within the art world. I'm going to do what I want. And that's what he did. Joost, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. Matthew Wong, Vincent van Gogh, Painting as a Last Resort, is at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam from the 1st of March until the 1st of September. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Alex and Jory, Annette and Joost. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. <laughs>